Well, good morning. My name is Marie Grunsky. I serve here as a life group leader with my husband, Eric, and on the mom's servant team. And I'm going to be reading John 5, 1 through 15 for us. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who, who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. My name is Jacob. I'm one of the pastors here at Mountain View, and it is a joy to be with you all this morning. Uh, we are jumping back into our series in John. Um, and as Aaron alluded to, we just finished our three-week series on image bearers. And, you know, the main point of, or the overarching principle of our series the last three weeks was that the reality that we are made in the image of God profoundly impacts the way that we view ourselves and those around us. But, you know, here's something that might sound obvious, but in order for us to more fully appreciate that we are made in God's image, it requires us to be able to see and know the person of God clearly. Because to the degree that our view of God is tainted, that'll also impact the way that we view ourselves as image bearers. You know, someone can't say to my daughter, wow, you look so much like your mom, unless they've also seen my wife well enough to be able to notice the resemblance. And so similarly, we can only see and encourage character traits of God in ourselves and others if we have seen God himself. And this is precisely why John wrote his gospel that we would see Jesus clearly. And the passage that Marie read for us this morning is Jesus at the pool of Bethesda. And this specific interaction was not mentioned accidentally. You know, Jesus did a lot 
of miracles. But John chose specific signs that help us to see the person of Jesus. Something that taught us something about who Jesus is and what he came here to do. And so the account is not just to show us a miracle, it's also instructive to help us to see Jesus more clearly. And as we dive into what we see about Jesus here, we're going to take maybe a brief detour to talk about something that we make an assumption of every Sunday. You know, every week we come here to worship God and to know him more, but how do we do that? By looking at the Bible, right? What we know about the person of Jesus and the character of God is only as good as the validity of this book. And the authority of the Bible is foundational for us to have confidence in it. There's a good reason why that is the very first topic that we talk about in our biblical distinctives class. Everything else flows from that. And when it comes to the Bible um, and the validity of it, there's two um, maybe questions that come up. You know, first is, uh, you know, were these manuscripts that are written 2,000 years ago passed down accurately over the years to us? Or, over time, were they embellished or exaggerated? The second concern would be even more foundational than that. You know, did these stories actually happen? Or did somebody later on write them to be able to maybe advance some sort of agenda? Our text this morning touches on both of those things. First, were these texts accurately passed down? You know, I think about um, the fact that my wife's family loves to hunt. But even more than hunting, they love telling hunting stories. And I've been around long enough to have heard the same story multiple times. And when the story is told again, it's tempting to make the deer a little bit bigger, to make the shot a little farther away. Did the same thing happen with the Bible? You may have noticed in our passage that verse 4 is missing. And in all modern translations, it's been omitted. And why is it missing? Because it was not present in the oldest Greek manuscripts. You know, there are more early manuscripts of this book than any other ancient work of literature in all of time. And with so many copies in modern times, we're able to accurately say what was original and what was not. And when the Bible was first organized with chapters and verses hundreds of years ago, we had less manuscripts than we have now. And as time went on, it was clear that verse 4 was not original, but it was added to help explain verse 7. So verse 7 says, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, and while I am going, another steps down before me, which by itself honestly raises more questions than answers. What does that even mean? And verse 4 helps to explain it. It says, an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. You know, that verse, verse 4, is helpful, and I believe it is accurate in portraying what people believed about the pool in that day and age. But in the thousands of manuscripts that helped to confirm the validity of the Bible, it was found to not be original, so it was removed. The Bible that we have in our hand or in our phone is a document that we can trust with thousands of manuscripts helping to confirm its validity. But secondly, 
Did this stuff actually happen? Or were these stories made up later on? Look at John's description of the Bethesda pool in verse 2. He says, Now there's in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. You know, John chooses to include this detail that the pool had five roofed colonnades, which, you know, honestly means nothing to us, right? Um, but for historical scholars, this was a big red flag. You know, all pools in Jerusalem were square, and a roofed colonnade is basically a covered porch. And these would be on all sides of the pool. Square pool, four sides, four colonnades. And so the fact that this pool was described as having five colonnades for many years was used as evidence to say that this couldn't have been written at the time of Jesus. Somebody must have made this up later on who didn't know about how pools were designed and structured back in that day. In the late 1800s, however, a man named Conrad Schick discovered the ruins of the Bethesda pool buried underneath a church. And guess what he found? That the pool at Bethesda is not one pool, but two pools. Just like any other pool, there are four colonnades, one on each side. But there also is a fifth colonnade that connects the two pools together. This pool was not talked about in other historical documents and was destroyed soon after Jesus' life. And so for many years, it thought that this didn't exist. But once this pool was discovered, contrary to being evidence that this story was made up, it provided evidence that said that not only did this happen, but it must have been documented by somebody who was an eyewitness of Jesus. You know, the account of Jesus, what we read in John is a real story about a real man who said that he was God. They were, these documents were accurately passed down so that we could see and know God clearly. Isn't that amazing? Praise God. What a privilege we have to look into the Bible and see and know the person of God at a deeper level. Because here's the thing. What we believe about God is the most important thing about us. And maybe even more specifically, what we believe about God when things are hard may be the most vital thing of all. Because if we see God and know him deeply, when trials hit, they have an ability to make our faith stronger, to be able to be more confident in the person of Jesus and who he is and what he can do. You know, James 1 says the testing of our faith can make us perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And I know that for many of you in this room, that's part of your story. That in the valley of despair, you're able to know and see Jesus in a richer and deeper way, and that galvanized your faith in a way that impacts you today. But on the other hand, we know that trials can also break someone. We were family friends um, growing up with a family that had two boys, um, one of which was a couple years younger than me. Um, that family didn't know Jesus, but we're just fun to be around. We enjoyed spending time with them. As the years went on, and as us kids grew up, we didn't see each other as much. But um, about 15 years ago, their youngest son 
died in a horrific car accident. Just devastating, shocking grief. And a couple of years ago, my parents saw his parents at a wedding, and the conversation turned spiritual. And at one point, my dad said to the boy's father, God loves you. And that man turned and said, how could I ever believe in a God that would allow my son to die? That trial, instead of having him see Jesus, tragically broke him. Think about the time for you when life was hard. Maybe it was a few months ago. Maybe it's right now. Maybe you're dealing with a prolonged trial with no end date. It's so important to be honest with ourselves, kind of during these seasons especially. What do I believe about God in these moments? What lies am I tempted to believe about God in these moments? And when Jesus interacted with this paralytic at the pool of Bethesda, we see three specific things about the character of Jesus. Three things that John hopes are instructive to us as we seek to, Jesus, to see Jesus clearly. First, Jesus knows our situation. Secondly, Jesus moves towards us. And third, Jesus works, but not in the way that we often ask. First, Jesus knows our situation. Let's look at the meat of our passage again, verses six through nine. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time. Let's take a step back and recognize the anonymity of this man to virtually everyone. This man was part of the forgotten in society. You know, for four decades, unable to contribute in any way to what the society might deem useful. And at some point, someone had brought this man to the pool. But by all accounts, that person was long gone. You know, not only was this man physically debilitated, but he was relationally debilitated as well. He was anonymous. He was forgotten. But not to Jesus. Jesus knew this man's story. He knew his pain. He knew his journey. And when we're in the midst of difficulty, our struggles are never anonymous. Jesus knows what we're going through. He knows us better than anyone else on the face of this earth. You know, Matthew 10, he says, even the hairs on our head are numbered. And if you've gone through trial, there may be people all around you, but it still might feel like no one truly knows the way that this trial is affecting you, the way that it's bearing down on you. Jesus knows those things. But not only does Jesus perfectly know our situation, secondly, Jesus moves towards us. Imagine that you were a citizen in Jerusalem during this time. Walking into the pool at Bethesda, you knew exactly what you were getting yourself into. While the rest of the city is bustling with activity and trade and conversation, there's probably silence at the pools. 
silence as crowds of the physically disabled lie there and wait. Humanity and its brokenness is on full display. And I think the natural response for most people would be to shrink back, to avoid, to step away. But our Jesus voluntarily goes in. Just like he did to the women at Samaria, he went out of his way to meet people in their time of need, to meet them in their brokenness. Suffering so often isolates, but Jesus draws near. And remember, this man did nothing to seek Jesus. He didn't didn't even know who Jesus was. Unlike most of us who naturally move towards comfort, Jesus moves towards need. And more than that, Jesus is easily moved to compassion by the things that are uh, causing us pain. The Gospels are full of examples of Jesus being stirred emotionally by the pain surrounding him. He entered in and felt deeply with those who were suffering. Jesus may not do exactly what we want, but it's not because he doesn't know and it's not because he's not with us or doesn't have compassion. He's sympathetic, he's engaged, and he moves towards us in our time of need. And to this paralytic, he knew his situation, he moved toward him, and lastly, he worked, but not in the way that the paralytic asked. As Jesus engages this man, knowing him from before he was born and moving towards him in suffering, he asks him this profoundly simple question. Do you want to be healed? Seems obvious, insulting even. Why else would this man be at the pool? But notice this man's response. He doesn't directly answer the question that Jesus asked. Instead, he laments that he has no one to put him into the pool. And again, let's try to put ourselves in this man's position as he responds to a seemingly straightforward question. For 38 years, this man has suffered physically, relationally, and most likely emotionally and spiritually as well. You know, when this trial first began, there may have been some hope for healing, but as this trial wore on, hope probably gave way to frustration, despair, and grief. And then he heard about the pool at Bethesda and its supposed healing properties. Now, let's be clear, the Bible never endorses this claim. You know, more than likely, uh, this pool was fed by a spring, and intermittently, that spring would cause some turbulence in the pool. And so legend had grown that the first person who got into the pool when the water was stirred would be healed of whatever ailment they had. And for this man, the superstition of a pool was his path for salvation. This was going to be the way that he was going to be made whole. And I can imagine him every day just thinking, if I just get into the pool, I'll be healed. If I just get into the pool, I'll be healed. And so when Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? The man's response 
I just need to get into the pool. And friends, isn't this so often the way that we respond to Jesus? We've already figured out how to make our situation better, and we're more than happy to have Jesus help us in that. We want to partner with Jesus so that he can get us what we think will bring us our salvation, what will get us out of our trial. We don't see Jesus as our salvation. We see him as a means to an end to get another salvation. That was the case with this man. He didn't see Jesus as his salvation. He saw the water as his salvation. And Jesus, he said, if you're up for helping me get into the water, I am totally down with that. You know, almost everyone initially comes to Jesus with some of this in mind. A relationship breaks, or kids go off the rails, finances are tight, or a health crisis comes up. And we come to Jesus saying, Jesus, that's what I ultimately want, what I'm ultimately putting my hope in. Help me to get that. Help me, in essence, to get into that water. And even for those of us who have been followers of Jesus for a long time, there's always this pull to think that we know what we need. And we ask God to partner with us in that endeavor. You know, Jesus exposes this by asking the deeper question that lies underneath the surface. Because the paralytic was asking to get into the pool, but we all know that his deeper need was for healing. And as this, this week as I've been thinking, I've been you know, asking myself, why do I ask for the things that I ask for? What is the deeper longing that is behind those desires? Am I asking God for things while standing on biblical truth? Or am I praying for things without realizing that God has already answered those deeper longings through his son, Jesus? Do I ask for God to help me to do well at work because I know that work is a good gift from God? Or am I seeking approval from man, forgetting that the God of the universe has already approved me and called me his son? Do I ask God to help me to save my money because I want to be a good steward of what God's given me? Or is my deeper longing security and I forget that Jesus has already told me that he will never leave me nor forsake me? Do I ask God to help me to go on trips and do activities to deepen relationships with others? Or am I truly longing for rest, forgetting that God has already promised my deepest rest in him? Or when illness hits a family member, do I ask for healing knowing that God can heal? But even if he does heal, we will all die one day. Do I ask for healing with the deep and abiding confidence that Jesus has already promised a forever life in a resurrected body that illness will never take away? Jesus saw this man, he moved towards him, and in an instant, Jesus worked. 
Not in the way that the man asked, but in a way that met the deeper physical need that the man did not even ask for. Sovereignly, immediately, without a doubt. Physical healing that restored muscles and nerve connections that modern medicine never could. In the midst of this man's fixation on getting in the water, Jesus, in essence, said, get up. I am the water. And this man, for the first time in 38 years, stood up, picked up his mat, and walked. Jesus knew this man fully, moved towards him, and worked in supernatural, miraculous ways. And yet, the physical healing does not seem to be the main thing that Jesus is after. Notice two things about that. First, remember, at the pool of Bethesda, there were multitudes of invalids that were at the pool. After Jesus healed a man, the man couldn't even see Jesus because Jesus had disappeared in the crowds. There was nothing redeeming or special about this man, yet Jesus sought him out specifically and healed him individually. If physical healing was Jesus' main objective that day, he could have easily been able to heal everyone at that pool. But he disappeared into the crowd and went away. Secondly, Jesus seeks out this man a second time later on when they're in the temple, and he says to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus' joy at seeing his healing was paired with a warning. What's the worst thing that Jesus was referring to? I think it's unlikely that Jesus was talking about a worse physical ailment. Just think about this man having an ailment for 38 years. I doubt that he would have even been able to live long enough to have one that lasted longer. You know, much more likely is that Jesus, in this incredibly loving way, was telling this man, look at the grace that you've been given today. I knew you, I sought you out, and I healed you in this miraculous way. But if the grace that you've been shown does not result in you seeing me as your king, if it doesn't result in you turning from your sin, then what's going to happen in the life to come is going to be much worse than what you've already experienced. You see, the goal of Jesus' ministry was not primarily to bring physical healing. It was to be able to provide a glimpse of the heavenly kingdom and an invitation to join. And in some interactions, Jesus' grace is met with joyful acceptance into his heavenly kingdom. In John 4, both with the Samaritan woman and with the official and his son, Jesus does miraculous things. And as a result, people see Jesus and believe in him as their king. But in this case, there's no evidence that true belief takes place. This man, fixated on getting into the water, was released of his deeper and greatest physical need. Yet there's something uncomfortable about this man's response, isn't there? He didn't thank Jesus, like many others who had been healed in the Gospels. You know, worse than that, he called Jesus out, telling the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who commanded him to break the Sabbath. And yet, isn't this so often 
the response to God's grace? From Bible times till now, Moses, Jacob, David, the disciples, this man, people who don't see God's grace, who don't appreciate God's grace, people who aren't moved to repentance by God's grace. But John wrote these things so that we would see God's grace, didn't he? That we would be able to see his character and that we would have life, the abundant life of the heavenly kingdom. And so church, is this the Jesus that you see when trials come? And maybe you're sitting here and you're in a trial right now. And it's hard for you to see this Jesus. Here's the reality. He knows what you're going through. You are never alone. The depth of your pain, the length of your journey, the way that it's taken its toll on you, Jesus knows. But more than just knowing, he moves toward you, especially in seasons of trial. Jesus put on flesh and dwelt among us. And even now, he is with us through his spirit in personal and intimate ways. He is present and near. And as he moves toward you, you can be confident that he's working. You may be tempted to partner with Jesus in what you think the next step should be, but his power knows no bounds. He is so far above us in knowledge and power that sometimes he works in the very specific way that we ask, but sometimes he works in ways that you don't even see or anticipate or expect. Now, the character of Jesus is such that he is radically up there while also intimately down here. He's working in ways that we are not aware of, yet he's also moving towards us in personal and specific ways. Romans 8 says this, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In verse 38, Paul says that he is sure of these things. Other translations use the word convinced or persuaded. Oftentimes, when we're in the midst of trial, there are two sets of evidence in front of us that seem to contradict each other. Did you know that that's normal in our human experience? Our hearts can be divided, not knowing which direction to go. In the Psalms, David frequently says one thing based on what he sees in front of him, and then another thing based on who he knows God to be. In Psalm 43, he says, You are the God in whom I take refuge. In the same breath, he says, Why do you reject me? David had a divided heart. And when we have a divided heart, we need to persuade ourselves, convince ourselves of what is true. On the one hand, I see the pain, the hurt, the brokenness of the situation that I'm in. 
and I don't know what to make of it. And subtly, I can think that if I'm a Christian, certain things shouldn't be happening to me. But that can't be true, can it? Just think about Paul, who wrote Romans 8. Beaten, shipwrecked, robbed, homeless. But even more than Paul, look to Jesus. His life was full of grief and sorrow. But what persuaded Paul when his heart was divided are the very same things that we see about Jesus in John chapter 5, that he moved towards us and that he worked. Verse 32 of Romans 8 said that God did not spare his son. God did not spare Jesus when Jesus moved towards us. In seeing broken humanity, Jesus took on flesh and didn't sit on the sidelines. He came to dwell among us. But God also did not spare his son when Jesus worked in the most significant way of all, by dying in our place. God didn't spare him there either. He didn't hold back any punches. The sin of all of humanity was put on Jesus. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs, and God did not spare one ounce of it for his son. And in light of that, anything that we ask Jesus for now is pennies in comparison to what he's already done for us. We may not see him working in our situation clearly. He may work in ways that we didn't ask for, but we can never say that God is cheap in what he gives us. He's already shown that his character is to move towards us and to work. The discomfort that we feel in this earthly kingdom gives us opportunity to orient ourselves to the heavenly kingdom. May the reality of how Jesus has already moved to us and worked anchor us when storms come. May we be people that see and know the true Jesus.